Welcome to Engage Your Tribe, a podcast about the art and science of audience engagement. I'm Jeremy Shear, and my guest today is Erica Brooks, VP of Marketing at Retrium. Erica, it's good to have you on the show. Ah, thanks, Jeremy. It's so good to be here. So before we dive into our discussion, just a quick shameless plug. Engage Your Tribe is brought to you by Tribal Knowledge Podcasting. That's my full-service B2B podcasting agency. We help brands use podcasting as a fun and efficient way to have authentic, non-salesy conversations with the buyers and the decision makers you need to get to know to grow your business. You can learn more at tribknowledge.com. Okay, so Erica, tell us a little bit about your background, both personal uh, professional and about Retrium. Sure. So in one way or another, I've been in marketing, communications, crisis and reputation management, brand management, you name it since like the nineties, which is horrifying to announce in public, but that is true. And, you know, I really got my start because I was a storyteller and I was telling the story to the media of different brands or different individuals that needed to improve their position in the public sphere. And that evolved into a career of, you know, ultimately going into the brand side of things and then digital marketing. And now here I am, however many years later, doing, you know, more or less full stack marketing for Retram, which is a tool for agile teams to have better retrospective meetings, which is a ceremony that's every, you know, two weeks or so, depending on the cadence of the team, where they inspect and adapt their performance to be better and continuously. I also have a podcast myself that is kind of my passion project. It is about how to sort of balance all of life, right? So mm. professional, personal, family, all of the different pools we have. How do we kind of break ourselves free of the treadmill that we can find ourselves on and be better and happier together? Let's see, me personally, I am a mother to five. I am a wife. I am an avid reader. I am a fan of murder mysteries and a not-so-murder mystery in the true crime space. Mm -hmm. And I really am just kind of one of those people that continuously learn. So if you talk about books, I get very excited because I've read a lot of books. Mm -hmm. So if we want to talk about books, we can do that probably another time. And that's more or less kind of me in a nutshell. Okay, very nice. And you left out kind of an important thing that you're not just a mother of five. You have twins. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Jeremy and I share this in common. We are twin parents. But yeah. I think I am the overachiever there in that I've got two sets of twins. So we have boy-girl twins that are seven, and then we have a girl in the middle who's the only singleton who is going to, mark my words, rule the world one day. <laughs> and then we have three-year-old identical boys that are just amazing wow. and magical. Yeah. Very that busy, is... but it's so much fun. You you know, I have I have identical boys and you know they're 20 years old now. And but yeah, you know, two sets of twins. Wow. <laughs> I like to, whenever I meet other parents of twins, I like to joke that we're like members of the same battalion because it's kind of we a are. war to raise twins, but you, yeah. you're the, com you're the commander of the battalion. You know, I, I, I hope you don't mind me sharing the secret that I think all twin parents know, yeah, sure. which is that there is that really hard part of being a twin parent, which is that there's two right. of them. And yeah. when they join forces, like you were just, you're outnumbered as you're going right. down. But it's also sometimes a lot easier to be a twin parent mm. because they always have a friend. That's they true. always have someone there to engage with. And of course, engagements we're talking about today, but there's always something to kind of yeah. bring them together and make it really fun. So, you know, there's there's always two sides to the coin when you think about parenting. Mm -hmm. And 
I see some of my friends that have, you know, one singleton and I'm like, man, that must be really hard Yeah, because <laughs> <laughs> they're always on and they're always engaging with, you know, one child. Yeah. Yeah, no, no, that's true. And and I totally agree. That is the 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 good one of the good things about having twins. And there are many yeah. wonderful things. Many. It's true they always have each other and mm-hmm. especially at those tr- important transition moments like first going to school, going to sleepaway camp, it's not as scary for them because mm-hmm. they they have their best no. friend with them to do it. Yeah. So it makes yeah. those things kind of easier for sure. Literally always travel in pairs, you know, they always have a friend, always that's, have a buddy. It's just they it's got magical each to watch back. it. Yeah, it's, it's just funny to me, though, sometimes because it's like when we first had twins, you know, they're little babies and everyone wants to stop and like, oh, my goodness, you have twins. And a lot of people would say, like, you're so lucky. I, you know, we I wish I had twins. And, and I'd always think in my mind, like, no, you don't. You, the only people <laughs> who wish that are people who don't have twins. They have no it, idea, no idea is- what it would be like. That is true. And I can tell you my husband's reaction when we found out that Coburn and Colton were, there were two of them in there, uh-huh, was yeah. nothing but <laughs> silence. I mean, he didn't say anything for probably three or four hours after he saw right. the two little heartbeats on the ultrasound. And mm-hmm. I was like, yay. And he was like, I need a minute. <laughs> you got to let me digest all this information because it was a lot to take in. I remember when we found out, you know, we're looking at the ultrasound and to me, it was always just a bunch of blurry blobs. I could never make yeah. head to tail. So I'm looking at it. I'm like, whatever. And the nurse, or the technician, I remember she she used these specific words. She looked at my wife, she looked at me, and she said, so how do you feel about having twins? And I, without <laughs> thinking about it, I said, no, nah, no thanks. We're, we're good with just one. <laughs> and then it dawned on me, I'm like, oh my God, we're having twins. My wife burst into tears, and I was just stunned into silence, not because she was like, Matter upset. It was just such a shock. Like we yeah. had no, we were not at all mentally prepared for that. And yeah, there's a whole long story behind it. But anyway, okay, our audience at this point is like, are you guys <laughs> just going to talk about twins? So, so we'll move on. So anyway, to the actual topic of this podcast. Now, when we spoke a week or so ago, and I asked you about your marketing strategy, you used the phrase "leading with value." So, what does that mean? Yeah, I think you know. W- Marketers in general talk a lot about target audiences, personas, finding connections and building relationships where they are. And when we think about leading with value, what we're really doing is we're building some sort of empathy and emotional relationship with those personas and putting ourselves in their shoes and being like, what would make me feel like this was a valuable exchange? And how can I build that relationship, leaning really heavily into this idea of value and the interdependence of value between authenticity and the outcome of trust? Because the more we can build trust and value and authenticity as those sort of, you know, us marketers love a good Venn diagram, right? Like when all three of those come together, it's kind of like this magic soup that happens where brands are able to, you know, ask questions of each other before it becomes a paid relationship. And, Mm. you know, I've had many conversations with folks that have come in and read our content and they've been like, you know, I feel like I should pay you for this because it's so valuable and it's helped me become better at my job and you give it away for free. Why do you do that? And I'm like, because you always think of me when you think of retrospectives, you Mm -hmm. always think I have a question about how to do this thing. Where can I go learn? And your number one resource is me. Is that true? And they're like, yeah. It's true. That's a nice thing to hear, right? As a marketer, it really makes you feel like, oh, I'm doing something right. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and like what you're talking about is giving away 
content just for free without gating it, right? To use that <laughs> yeah. kind of jargony term that you can make content available in exchange for an email address or some other information, or you can just put it out there and give it away. Now, clearly you're talking about just putting it out there, giving it away at least most of the time, right? And so, yeah. and, and so talk more about like, what's the, what's the value in doing that? And I ask because mm -hmm. I think the reasons for gating are, kind of obvious, you know, you get something in exchange, you get, you build mm -hmm. up your email list that way. It's common practice, you know, nothing wrong with it. And I right. think most people are like, eh, okay, if you really want it, you'll give your email address, but why give it away? Like, are, are you not kind of missing out on an opportunity to get email addresses? The idea of missing out on that FOMO of email addresses is something that I talk about all the time with my team and even with some of the contractors that we have supporting us, mm -hmm. where they're like, you need to content this content. You need to gate this content. Sorry, excuse me. Yeah. So gate the content because you are missing an opportunity for a currency exchange in the form of an email address, which is really what we're trying to do, right? Like at that point, your email address as a lead is our currency we're dealing yeah. in. And I challenge that assumption and say, let's push that idea back closer to the actual point of currency in the form of dollars exchange, where the email address as a currency exchange happens when you go into the product, not when you come into the content I'm using to build value, trust, buy-in, belief, all of those outcomes and desirable sort of interactions between a brand and a prospect. And, you know, the more that people interact with our content, the better it is for us because we're constantly going to be back of mind. We're constantly, when you think of X, you're going to think of Y brand. And I think that is kind of the utopia that all of our, us as marketers are striving towards is how can we build that when I think adhesive band-aid, I think, or bandage, I think band-aid, right? Like that yep. is amazing. And that is really the outcome we're striving for. Now, of course, gating has a time and a place. Absolutely. If content is your currency and is your product, you have to gate your content because people have to pay you for it. That is not the case in most like B2B SaaS toolings. You're not really paying for content. You might be giving away courses of which, of course, I always say like, if you're educating people, one of the best ways for people to believe that you're going to educate them is to educate them for free. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it's that sort of like, you know, tug and pull between what's for free and what's not for free. It's just the whole idea of like, when someone's about to release a book, and they're marketing the book, they give away a chapter for free, because then you're hooked. Yep. And yep, you've gotten yep. the free, the free sort of like taste of what you're going to get when you pay for it. You know, but we do have some gates. There are some gates that we have. I can't have a webinar without asking for people's email addresses and then send them the information to join it. I, if, if you're going to download an ebook, there's going to be some sort of action that I'm going to probably ask you to take. And the gate does not always have to be an email address. It can mm. be a, hey, let me ask you a question. Mm -hmm. Are you reading this content because you want to learn this, this, or this? And then we can use that data point to help us understand what value is maybe missing that we don't have. And so we can actually ask for additional data points to help guide our content strategy as a gate. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when we go back to this idea of value, which is where we kind of start this whole conversation, there is a, there's a gate associated with perceived value, and there's a gate associated with realized value. And making sure that the gate is at the point of realized value is extremely important. Because as soon as you put that gate up and it's not at realized value, people are going to bounce out and they're not going to give you anything. And you also haven't had the opportunity to build that relationship. Mm -hmm. Okay. Wow. 
a lot of good stuff there. So first, I love that the idea of not giving up on getting anything, but it doesn't have to mm-hmm. be an email. Exactly. Right? Because I think that's really just thinking from my own experience, when I am asked for emails, just my gut reaction is, eh, if I absolutely have to, and it's the only way I'm going to get it, and I really want this piece of content, okay, but there's a lot of hesitancy there, and I'd rather not. But if someone just, if it's a simple drop down, why, you know, what is your interest in this? Sure. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm giving up anything, anything of great value on my part. It's just like, oh, mm-hmm. okay, I get it. They just want to get some sense. That's easy enough. Here you go. And then I grab the thing. Like that's a big difference mm-hmm. and a good middle ground, I think, as a way to get valuable information, the data from, from the people without asking for too much or the kind of thing that's going to maybe deval- devalue or break that trust a little bit. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one of one of the unfortunate misgivings I think a lot of marketers approach interactions with is that the only outcome we should be focused on is getting the one thing we need, which is either buy now or here's my mm. email address. Yeah. And there's so much more when we think about what the funnel can look like if we just make it a little bit bigger. We make that funnel bigger, which I know is going to make some marketers go, oh, God, no, my funnel's already huge. But if you make it a little bit bigger and you think about ways you can get additional value while delivering value, you can really experiment with that. And, you know, a a bigger funnel is not always a bad thing. When you Mm -hmm. make your funnel bigger, you have additional opportunities so that then, you know, your marketing qualified leads are extremely valuable and have you know, a high conversion to customer ratio and your cat yeah. goes down and you're super excited about all the other metrics that are just pointing and going green and everyone's happy, you know? So yes, I think that, you know, everyone can kind of, as a marketer can kind of think about what if I were to ask questions to my tribe? What if I were to engage them and really use feedback to drive my marketing strategy the way we use feedback to drive a product roadmap? Same, same yeah. sort of idea, right? Yeah, I mean... And a huge amount of value there if, if and, and I assume this is always the case, right? Like you're putting that ebook out there. You're putting that, you know, infographic out there because it's a, it's part of your content marketing strategy and to establish yourself as an authority. And mm-hmm. the, the way to do that at the highest level is to put out the best possible content that's most aligned with the needs of your audience, Right. And which is not the easiest thing to do. So if you can get direct feedback from that audience and use it to tweak the content and make it even better, that's a lot of value there. It's not just like, <laughs> well, we're getting something. No, you're, you're getting quite a bit, I would say. Yeah. And depending on how you ask the question, you both, you can both get quantitative, which is just like one, two, three, four, five, right? Data, yeah. or you can get really qualitative information about, hey, my team is really struggling with psychological safety. I've read everything Mm. I can about the topic. We are still not having great conversations because trust is not there and everyone is skeptical and there's too much harm being done for us to even have a productive conversation. What do I do? And then it's kind of like a checklist maybe will help you on how to, you know, address these concerns or, you know, there's a webinar that you should go and we can kind of customize information that's delivered based on that as well. And then you build a content funnel that just makes sense against it. And you can nurture stream people that are opening up psychological safety and depending on how many they open, you know, you know what the pain Mm -hmm. point is for them. Yeah, no doubt. So, you know, like I gave 
an example, like personally, when I'm asked for an email, I'm a little like, eh. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I mean, obviously, that's a super small sample size. And I, I don't want to assume, like, what what do you think? Do you think that that's a common feeling? Or could you argue, maybe some people do argue, like, eh, it's it's just an email. Like, it's if people really want the content, if it's good enough, it's no big deal to ask for an email. And you get, and, and you know, that really is a valuable thing to have. So mm-hmm. why not do it? You're still going to get the thought leadership value and you'll get the email. Like, is that a legitimate argument in your point? You are introducing something that is a challenge. I think every marketer has, which is, is this a healthy email address? Is this an email Mm. address that people are actually using to get valuable information delivered to them? Or is it their spam email that they Mm. only go to and they're looking for a coupon code or something very specific? Because that I think is more common than people that, will give their email address freely and then actually open everything. I mean, look, every marketer knows what their open rates are on emails. They're not what you really want them to be. You're like, I want 100% of people to open them. Never, ever are you going to get 100%. But, you know, when you think about the value of an email address and you think about that hesitancy, it is our job as marketers building demand through engagement and through my argument is value and authenticity and trust. You, you don't want people to have that, Hey, I need your email address moment. Be a point of friction. You want people yeah, to yeah. think, Oh, they're asking for me email address. Does that mean they're going to give me this content and push it to me for free versus me going out and having to find it? Because that right, is when people yeah. get excited and they're, they're more than happy to give it. So I think it's more of eliminating that friction and making sure you get their primary email instead of their spam email address. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I'm the dummy that actually, you're making me think like, oh yeah, I just need to have a dummy email address. Like, why am I giving my real? Because I, when I do that, I'm like, oh, here's my email. Sure. Yeah, I should just I have know. a fake, a, a fake email. That's a good idea. I'm going to definitely if do you, that from now on. If you do that with your email address, do you not open up your phone and just go delete, 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 delete? And you don't actually well, pay yeah, attention, right? Like you're just looking for things that you know are true. high value. Yeah. And then you're deleting everything else because it's just garbage. And that's just not a really good, like, that's not a good yeah. email marketing, you know, perspective to have when you're thinking about your health of your email strategy. But yes, there are tons of people out there that do trash email addresses. <laughs> right. I don't think it's a good idea. Don't do it. But they exist, right? I'm not really going to yeah. do it. so okay so switching gears for a sec well Mm -hmm. actually just switching gears what's a marketing trend or a channel or a concept that you think is a little overrated and i know that i sent you these questions beforehand so before we started recording you're like "Eh, this might get me in trouble so go ahead get in trouble i am fully i'm just gonna dive headfirst into it and just do it influencer marketing Boom. And I know we're here talking about engaging your tribe, but let me explain why I think influencer marketing is overrated. We are in the world right now where articles are coming out, where TikTok influencers are making more than the top earning CEO in the country. Really? Yes. There was an art. Yes. Yes, definitely. And it wasn't just one. It was like maybe three or four TikTok influencers are making more than the top earning CEO. Wow. And last year's, yes, it was crazy. When I read that, I was like, yep. So this is why I think it's overrated. I think okay. brands and I think some people that are influencing marketing strategy see this opportunity and without fully understanding it, throw all the money they can at it. And they go mm-hmm. after influencers that either aren't fully aligned 
as far as who they're speaking to and what their target audience is, or the content they create is not reflective of, you know, the brand voice you have. So Mm -hmm. for example, for us, our brand voice that we use at Retram is we want to feel like you would sit down next to us at a bar and feel comfortable asking us any question you wanted to ask about retrospectives. Well, we had like a beer, a glass of wine, a seltzer water, whatever your drink of choice is. And we just Mm -hmm. talked candidly, freely, and just had a conversation. And if we had someone that was very structured, that would not really jive with our brand voice, right? So that's a little bit of a loose example. Another example would be, let's say you sign on with an influencer who then is like arrested. Or let's Mm. say that you give all this money to an influencer and you don't really see the return for whatever reason. Mm -hmm. It's the potential that exists in influencer marketing. And the why the reason I think it's overrated is that so many people think it's the silver bullet to their marketing strategy, that by putting cash behind these influencers, they're immediately going to buy and acquire that influencer's audience. And that mm-hmm. is a hugely unfortunate thing to think because everyone just kind of like your gut should be like, something doesn't feel right here. I'm kind of thinking that if we're going to go out there and buy this, like, that just, it feels like we have to do some relationship building there. We have to mm-hmm. show the value mm-hmm. of what we're trying to do with these influencers before we can really expect their audience. And then there's only going to be some percentage that comes over. So what is it really going to do? But you see these brands just throwing money and money and money. And in the DTC space, it works a little bit, I think, differently than what we're thinking about for B2B. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's just this unfortunate misgiving around what's going to happen when you go after influencers and in, in many, many spaces. Now, that being said, my background's in PR. Guess what? I used to do a ton of influencer relations. Like I used to go mm-hmm. and I would talk to influencers and I would encourage them to talk about my products, services, whatever else it was that I was representing at the time. And sometimes it would work. And why mm-hmm. would it work? Because it was always a value approach first with authenticity. Yeah. So what value am I giving to the influencer that then their audience will mm. eat up? Right. So there has so to be if, that authenticity baked in somehow. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so, it can't just you know, be purely transactional. Right. Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, you see a lot of you know, news articles about people that have huge social media followings that very quickly fall from grace. And the yeah, outcome right. when they fall from grace is always these brands have dropped them. Mm-hmm. Think about what the financial impact and reputational impact is for those brands that were with those influencers. Yeah. It can be pretty right. big. It's pretty risky. And so a calculated and understood strategy is so important. And I think that that's just overlooked a lot. Okay. So there are some influencers making, I don't tens of millions of dollars a year, maybe way more than that, like more than the top CEOs. Yeah. You know, I, yes, I'm going to find this article and send it to you and we'll have to like link it or something because it was, when I read it, I was like, man, this is the world we live in now. Like, how is this, you know, what does this mean for, for how we build relationships, not just as marketers, but as humans? Yeah. Like it's just a very different, it's a different dynamic. I'm thinking like, I'm in the wrong business. Right? Get in the influencer business. <laughs> Forget about this podcast stuff. Okay. So flip side of the question, what's a, a marketing you know, trend or idea that you think is a little under? You know, I believe, and this is something that I have seen in 
business to business and and direct to consumer, and even when we're doing reputation, that organic search and creating content that is just that Google loves is mm-hmm. always valuable. And I I know that people put some weight on SEO, but I don't think people put enough weight and have enough awareness around some of the tooling and opportunities there are for people to really you know, challenge and stand firmly at number one and win those mm. feature snippets and and do what you need to do to have the first listing for your business on Google My Business. And I think that when we really sit back, people trust Google a lot. Mm-hmm. We think Google has learned us and has become a friend in our sort of experience online. And when we ask Google a question, we're actually asking Google a question now. We're not sitting back and thinking like we were in like, the nineties, we're not sitting back and thinking, (laughs) what do I need to search here? So I get what I actually want. And like, Jeremy, I don't know Mm -hmm. if you remember that experience, but I remember sitting and going like, okay, how can I actually find the content I'm looking for online? Whereas now I can open up Google and I can ask it who makes the best pink unicorn costume. And I can find the best pink unicorn costume near me because Google knows where I live and how quickly mm-hmm. I'm, I'm right. how far away I'm willing to drive to go find a pink unicorn costume, right? Like it's just it's learned so much, it's become so smart that we trust it. And so when you're number one and Google has rewarded you that way, there's a little bit of baked in and inherent trust. Wow, that's a great point. It's like that's become so just baked into how we think and what we do that it's. <laughs> I think you're right. It's kind of underrated. Like we don't think <laughs> about it explicitly anymore. And I am old enough, but by far old enough to remember that kind of like, it was more like this Google thing. Okay. Like thinking carefully about how to phrase it. I mean, now you don't even type it anymore. You're literally talking, Hey Google, what's the best X, Y, or Z? What's the best thing near me? And Google will just talk back to you. It's like, you know, we're, it is, we, and we totally trust whatever answer Google gives us. We yeah, just do in, for good reason. It's often the really good answer. In-home search is so interesting. I watch the way that, you know, my children interact with all the technology we have in our house. And yeah. they are asking Google questions when they're doing homework when I'm sitting right next to them. <laughs> right. Because like Alexa might be closer or I might be talking to somebody else and they just ask, you know, either either they ask their voice Google prompts right on their computer, or they ask Alexa because we're an Alexa house and uh-huh. they get the answer of how to spell sandwich. And maybe they just cheated on their spelling test. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it is it is really interesting to see how, you know, even my three year olds, they'll be somewhere mm-hmm. and they'll just assume Alexa is listening and they'll go, I can't do it because there's Alexa right here, but they'll ask Alexa a question and yeah. she'll answer. And, you know, it's really this, the relationship between the search on, on Alexa and what Alexa delivers to you in home yeah. and Google today, that is bridging very quickly. Yep. And so if we can get our in-home devices and our in-home search to give us the same answers that we're building up on our organic through keywords, then you have your home experience mirroring your you know work experience, which is, all those lines are blurred mm-hmm. now because work from home and, yeah. and virtual and COVID and all that stuff. So Yeah, um, right. Absolutely. But yeah, wow. so I I think that any marketing strategy that is not actively engaged in understanding not o- not only current trends in organic search and, and search engine optimization, but also what's coming down the pipe 
around mm-hmm. like in-home search, the metaverse even, what does that mean? Like how can you engage with right. that? What What is the future of that platform for all the brands in the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, right? Like Redream has a virtual meeting component to it. So you have to imagine what does that mean for us? Because that's a pretty cool thing to think about. Like anyway, yeah. But, you know, I think that any marketing strategy that is missing that piece of search is missing a huge component of their mix that really needs to be turned up. Yeah, 100%. Wow. A lot of great stuff there. Well, Erica, thank you so much for all those uh, insights. Great discussion. Loved it. Yeah. Thank you. I can talk about marketing until I'm literally blue in the face. So thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. That's it for this episode of Engage Your Tribe. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, you might as well give the show five stars and leave an over-the-top comment about how much you love the podcast. You know you want to. If you're a marketer or an internal communicator and you're interested in podcasting, we've got tons of free resources on the website at tribknowledge.com. That's T-R-I-B knowledge.com. Thanks for listening and staying engaged.